Hello, everyone, and welcome to Citizen Reporter number 419 for the 26th of April, 2012. I'm glad to have you along. This is the podcast dedicated to underreported news and global concerns. I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Some people on the internet call me Bicycle Mark. And today it's the legacy of Occupy that we're going to look at. It's not even been a year since the event or the events that really made the world take notice. And the question now is, what is the legacy of Occupy? And also, what is to come? Maybe based on the past, we can see the future. And to help do that, we have people who are still observing, still working on this issue. Occupy. First of all, what, what sort of led you to write this piece? Because I don't know you previously. I don't know that you've been writing uh, other articles in newspapers and publications. Sure, sure. Um, you know, the, the short version is they asked me to. <laughs> the, ah. the, longer, the, longer version, the longer version is I had written a piece for them previously, probably about a month ago, on um, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, the one that um, permits indefinite detention and all the other... Uh, objectionable provisions, and I had written an article about that, and I forget how they got to me, probably through Karen Greenberg at the Center on Law and Security at Fordham uh, Law School, uh, Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, and uh, they they contacted me. So I wrote uh, a little piece, and I guess they liked it, and so when they had this other legal issue come up uh, on this on this statute being amended, uh, they reached out to me, and, and it's something that I have interest in generally as a person, as a citizen, and specifically as a lawyer, having litigate. I'm a criminal defense attorney by trade, but with a lot of experience in the last uh, 12, 13 years in national security type cases, I was the first U.S. private lawyer at Guantanamo, represented uh, David Hicks, the, the Australian detainee there. So I was the first lawyer, uh, the first you know civilian lawyer in the military commissions and have done a, a large number of, of terrorism-oriented cases and other national security-type cases, many of which involve the First Amendment. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, so I have a background in that. Yeah. Yeah, for everybody listening, uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're talking to Joshua Drattel. He's a criminal defense attorney in New York City. And uh, he has a recent piece that is in Guernica magazine uh, entitled The Evaporation of American Political Dissent. And, uh, you know, this piece certainly got my attention uh, also because of, indeed, just as you said, your, your background and your work. Um, you, you start the piece off actually way back in history, and you talk about the, the year 1789 and this Alien and Sedition Act. And I, I want to make sure, especially for non-Americans that may be listening, I mean, what was so significant of this act? Sure. Well, uh, it, 1789 is when the Constitution... Um uh, you know, when the, when the current U.S. government, the Constitution, was uh, ratified and included the Bill of Rights, and the first uh, the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights guarantees freedom of speech. And what I was remarking on is that you had this extraordinary principle by which a government guaranteed its uh, subjects, essentially, the right to dissent, free of any government punishment. And then all it took was uh, seven more years after, you know, by 1798, rather, nine more years when the second president, John Adams, took office, uh, he was uh, so intolerant of dissent that they passed what's called the Alien and Sedition Acts. 
1798, which essentially, to a certain extent, gave the government discretion to equate dissent with treason and to punish it quite severely. So it it was designed to uh, it was designed to essentially eliminate criticism of the government. So in other words, that if you spoke ill of the government, you would be branded uh, a traitor who was essentially helping the British, because at that time the British were still interfering with U.S. sovereignty as a, as a as a young nascent country trying to get on its feet. And ultimately, it led to a war in 1812. But during those two first two decades, uh, the British were a significant uh, adversary of the United States during that period, and. Uh, anyone who was aligned either against the government of the U.S. or aligned with the British uh, was deemed treasonous. And then the Alien and Sedition Act made it easy to to uh, prosecute and imprison enemies of the government. And there was a tremendous outcry of opposition. And when Jefferson took office in 1801, Thomas Jefferson, effectively the statutes were nullified in terms of enforcement, but... Uh, nevertheless, they existed for a while. And they were used uh, you know, to 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 they were used to uh, to attack uh, enemies, or I should say, opponents of the of the political administration that was in power. Hmm. Opposition and parties. And you're saying, I mean, that this has been going on ever since. That's right. So, in other words, you have this this shining principle initially with the Constitution of the First Amendment, and what you've had periodically, particularly in times of war. At times of uh, where there's a, a perceived vulnerability or or, or security threat, that uh, you have the government working overtime to uh, eliminate dissent and equate it with treason. Hmm. And so we come to the year. I mean, we're in 2012, but let's go to 2011 since it was such an important year. I'm thinking of the, especially the Occupy movement, which was massive in the United States, or, or at least you know, large, let's say, and, and all over the world, really. I experienced it here in, in Amsterdam. Um, you point out in your piece this uh, H.R. 347, or the Federal Restricted Buildings and Grounds Improvement Act of 2011. It sounds like an act that's just about parks or, or groundskeeping or something, but uh, it, it's about a lot more than that. Yes, it's... Well, the the act existed before. What they did this year to amend it was eliminate one of the elements that distinguishes it from other types of offenses by taking out the willfully and leaving the knowingly what they've done is is take away the sort of subjective intent to a certain extent of the defendant as necessary so that uh, it, it, it reduces the government's burden in terms of proving a violation and and it's designed to I, I to me it's designed to limit Again, where dissent can occur, and particularly in the context of the Occupy movement, uh, political conventions, uh, and you know, uh, places that are designated as nationally significant, or uh, uh, events that are de- designated as nationally significant, or persons who, or places that come under the jurisdiction of the Secret Service, are the areas that are covered within this law. So it generally makes certain places off limits for protest unless people are willing to expose themselves to arrest. Now, in the context of Occupy, a lot of people did that, but those were, uh, in, in a relatively speaking, minor arrests uh, by state and local official, officials that were ultimately, most of them are dismissed. Uh, very yeah. few of them could stick. Uh, this federal federal law enforcement is a much more serious game to play, and, and it, even though the, the potential penalties are not stiff, nevertheless, uh, it's a lot more serious, and it sort of ratchets up the 
the the oppressiveness of limiting dissent significantly. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like over the last few years, uh, you know, anyone who, who protested the Iraq war knows that there are so many restrictions. I mean, I grew up in New York City. You're, you're in New York. You needed a permit, you know, to, to protest. And, and you, there were free speech zones uh, when, uh, I think, when Bush was inaugurated, the, the Bush Jr. And uh, it almost seems like, you know, this has been going on for as long as I can remember in my short life. Uh, this thing where, yeah, maybe you can protest, but we're going to put so many conditions on it that it really doesn't have a big impact anymore. Yeah, well, I think it's a product of a couple of developments. And then I go back, I'm, I'm 55, so I grew up, uh, you know, as a, at least as an adolescent in the late 60s and then through the 70s, is that the, the impact of mass demonstrations that could not be contained by the government was significant. And as uh, TV becomes more powerful as a medium of disseminating this type of information and people seeing uh, this, uh, the, the numbers and feeling solidarity and feeling empowered because of the numbers that they see on the street and, and protesting. And then you have now social networking, which adds to that, and the Internet as just in general, um, adding to the ability uh, of people to act coordinated and together. The government, I think, has recognized that uh, this is dangerous to those who are powerful. And when I say dangerous, I don't mean physically dangerous. It's dangerous in terms of accountability, that they can't just do what they want to do free of accountability for, the, for, for, for conduct and for decision-making that they should be accountable for in the sense of the electorate. Um, and that these people who are, are demonstrating and have a voice, and if they can be heard, if they can get their message out, they can have an influence on how people view their government, whether their government is succeeding or not succeeding, whether their government is acting in the interests of the people or not in the interest, or in the interests of a few, or the interests of the many. And by limiting their access to media, so that was one of the things that New York City Police Department did in the context of Occupy Wall Street, was to arrest media personnel and to do things uh, well, I was off limits to the media, keeping the media blocks away so that they couldn't film some of the right. uh, some of the episodes where they were clearing out Zuccotti Park and all of that. So what you do is you limit the ability to get message out and to have a spotlight shown on government conduct in the way that they're handling free speech. Yeah, and it seems like it's been relatively successful. I mean, we talk about the success of Occupy, and I, I want to take nothing away from that. But I also see a great success on the part of the police, be it in New York and Oakland, because they were able to do, let me not overstate it, but they were able to do whatever they wanted to when it came down to it, you know, to remove people. Uh, so that's one of, part of my confusion in all this. We say, you know, socially and, and in the, you know, uh, court of public opinion, uh, it was a great victory for Occupy, or it was, a, you know, at least overall. But the police also survived quite well using... Sometimes, as you said, cases that aren't even going to go anywhere, but they still pushed everybody out, arrested, you know, hurt, and whatever they had to do. Yes, and, and I, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, there are competing interests here, and one of the, you know, the interests of the, the Occupy movement to get the message out and to get it out broadly and continuously so that it's not just a fad, but something that has staying power for purposes of, of having an impact on, on decision-making in this country mm. – but the other is the interest of the government in suppressing that and permitting business as usual. And it's competing. In other words, Occupy has good days and the police have good days. And what I mean by that is achieving their objectives. And so uh, it's, it's always going to be competing that way. I think that 
unfortunately, on the one hand, uh, the Occupy movement's getting the message out is something that is consistent with American values, and protesting and, and trying to uh, uh, point people towards accountability or you know towards evidence that would lead people to, to perhaps draw conclusions that are different than what they're getting from mainstream media and from, from politicians as an independent source of information and, and opinion. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that the, that the, the competing interests of the police and, other, or, and the politicians, which is to suppress dissent, is not an American value. It's un-American. And that's the problem I have is, you know, that you don't mind, you know, in the legal world, we live in an adversary system in the courtroom where both sides essentially battle it out in, according to a set of rules. But both sides have an equal right to prevail, depending on, you know, who can convince a jury one way or another. But in the context of the First Amendment, there shouldn't be a side that's looking to suppress First Amendment activity. And to me, that's the objectionable part of it. But I agree with you that to the extent that they've diminished the ability of protesters to, to first to protest, second is to reach people, uh, they have succeeded. And, and that's unfortunate because it's supposed to be an open marketplace idea. It's not a marketplace only for the people who are powerful enough to own a news station. Yeah, one of the one of the big and interesting points you you made towards the end of your piece in, in Guernica was um, that in fact, as all these things happen, uh, um, statutes and, and and all these laws that come into play, uh, when it comes to free speech, we don't go back. In uh, meaning that they build on each other. I think is something you were pointing out. So yeah. we don't go back to a time where things were a little more open. It just compounds and gets more closed. Yeah, we never put all the toothpaste back in the tube, uh, unfortunately, and uh, it's you know it's gotten messier and messier over time, and we're stuck with we're stuck with the residue of decades and decades and, and possibly even centuries if you go back again to the Alien and Sedition Acts, and and some of the conduct in the Civil War that was designed to uh, suppress dissent, but. But what you have is, because, you know, in the, in the Guantanamo context, by the way, there was civil war precedent that was cited by the government and also by the, by the, by the, by the habeas petitioners, you know, by the detainees. It goes back 150, now almost 170 years in terms of, uh, or I guess 150 years in terms of looking for precedent. But uh, we've, had, we've had decades of, the, the residue of the decades of suppressing dissent. And probably in the modern times, it starts after the First World War with the Palmer Raids. Uh, directed at anarchists and communists at the at the end of the First World War, let's say from 1919, 1920, starting, I guess, with the Espionage Act of 1917 that was passed during the war, again, to suppress uh, opposition to the war. Those people who uh, opposed the war for a variety of reasons, some of which because they saw it as profiteering, some because they were pacifists, uh, some perhaps because they sided with uh, the people who were classified as enemies. But for whatever reason, those who were essentially speaking out against the war uh, were branded as criminal. And so the Espionage Act permitted those prosecutions, and that's been built on. It's never been rolled back, and you go through the McCarthy period. It's never been fully rolled back. And then you go through the 70s and the and the Nixonian uh, program that was the subject of congressional hearings about the CIA and the FBI and, and special groups that were designed to... Um, uh, infiltrate and neutralize protest groups, uh, but none of that's all completely gone away because that, you know you can see that it, it's still it's still the the operational modus of the uh, of the New York City Police Department and among other law enforcement organizations that it's about infiltrating, it's about surveillance, it's about all of those things for people who are merely exercising their First Amendment rights. Yeah, what I, what I find interesting, even just listening to you, Joshua, is that 
you know, you're working uh, defense attorney. There have been ca- you're doing handling terrorism uh, cases, and I'm sure as you've already started to, you can touch on on stories that that would make us quite sad when it comes to uh, the state of <laughs> law and and you know what rights people have these days. But at the same time, it seems to me that you're doing what you do because you do see not a silver lining, but that there is still another side to this. It's not just whatever uh, the current government wants uh, to do. There, There is still a world where there is some kind of defense, there is some kind of justice possible. Yeah, well, look, there are two things about it. One is that to leave the field entirely to yeah. the government would be an abdication for those of us who are committed to doing this kind of work. The second is that the fundamental legal principles do exist for us to make the arguments that we do. What we have to do is convince judges and and get them to look beyond sort of the the propaganda of national security and and to get them to act independently so that they don't feel uh, that they can't rule in favor of a defendant because somehow uh, it's going to be the the end of the republic if they do, and that's the way you know the government often uh, portrays it, not necessarily overtly, but in some ways overtly. But there's a there's a hidden message that this is too important to let legal principles interfere, and as a result, you know, and and, and even in the Occupy movement, I live downtown, and, and frankly, I did not find it a disruption, uh, but it was more disrupted by police barricades than anything else, not by the mm-hmm. Occupy uh, protesters themselves, but more by the the choking of the streets and the and the and the congestion that the the police barricades caused, and so uh, the police presence caused. And um, you know, there's this question of you know, if you said to uh, police people or politicians in New York City about why is 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 the reaction so dramatic for a few hundred protesters uh, who haven't engaged in any kind of organized violence whatsoever, you say, well, they have to keep it safe and all of this and that. And it's you know, it's all rhetoric designed to make people think that if they're not confined in some way or or limited in their ability to protest that somehow it's going to be a threat to public order and uh uh you know we haven't seen that yet and that's that's really just a propaganda campaign as far as i'm concerned yeah yeah and and i mean i I don't even think it's a matter of what footage you see i think you could look at any footage uh from that from last year and I, I don't see how you can see it any other way. Um, you know, a lot of this is so obvious and, and clear. Um, and I don't know if that, that, you know, waters me down as a journalist, but that's definitely uh, where I stand on that matter. Like, it's just, yeah, I've been watching today documentaries about, you know, one year after and and uh, the way they took down Zuccotti Park, for example. Mm-hmm. It's just, yep. uh, it's incredible. It, I guess that's part of how this all works. People wouldn't believe, even with their own eyes, what they see, you can't really process it. Like this is what our police force does. This is, this is how we're functioning right now. Um, I, I don't know what it is. It's one of those things where you would say, if this happened, we wouldn't accept it as a country. But then it happens, and what are we gonna do? Uh, we accept it. We might protest again, <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, there's a certain level of provocation involved, also. Uh, so that it can justify harsher methods, and the movement has to resist that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, moving away from its core operations, which is protest, and not get into situations that give the police license 
to go even further or to justify harsh measures by saying, see, this thing happened, so now we have to do the following, or this mm-hmm. justifies all the things we've done, um, and, and not to be baited by provocation in that regard. But also, uh, the, you know, the part about, uh, you know, you were talking about um, uh, acceptance and, and all of it, but journalistic objectivity. I don't oh, think well, it's, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't think <laughs> I don't have any of that. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. What I, what, what I was also saying is that I don't think that a journalist uh, has the response. Well, let's put it this way. It, 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 if, if objectivity means providing, or if objectivity is presenting two competing points of view as if they're equal when they're not, mm. is not mm. objectivity. So for example, if you give equal play or equal credence to the notion that the world is flat and the world is round, that's not, that's not objectivity. That's just preposterous. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and we have that all the time in the media. We have that all the time, and it's unfortunate. And I think it's, it's in, some ways, in some ways it's just sort of an easy way not to make judgments. Yeah. But, but there's, you know, there's a certain level of, you know, the media is caught between sensationalizing and... Um, uh, the court between trying to make everything sensational at the other time, trying to make sure that the you know that everybody thinks the emperor has clothes. So you know it's, it's a it's a, it's a difficult tightrope walk for the media itself. Uh, not yeah. that I, I'm saying it's a good thing, but I think no. that 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 you know the mainstream media sort of falls into that category in many ways. Yeah, yeah. When I was an intern at the uh, at the Village Voice, uh, my 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 editor used to say, "Well, you've got one side, but you need to go back out there and at least." let this person we're investigating uh, defend themselves, you know, <laughs> and I would have to go back out and go find them. Yeah, no, I mean, you have to give people an opportunity <laughs> to do that, but you don't have to, but I think that you right. don't have to present them as, as, as necessarily having equal right to, to legitimacy. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you have to, I'm not saying that you have to say, make a judgment, say this is illegitimate and this isn't, but what I, what I, what I don't like about the way that, first of all, like the media operates, and in the, in the, in the, in, you know, in the particular context we're talking about, in Occupy Wall Street, or whatever, they'll they'll just they'll just say the mayor said the following, or the police commissioner said the following, and someone else said the follow, and the Occupy said the following, without an analyzing whether there are facts to back up either side. Right. So if you just do that, if it's just a question of competing sound bites, it has zero meaning. Mm. What you really need is to analyze and say the mayor said the following. Yet, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the mayor said the mayor said he respects the First Amendment, but yet he waited about you know x amount of days before he got tired of the First Amendment and decided to move people out. The mayor said that this was happening. The fact is, there were x reported incidents, which doesn't, which is probably less than on that block on a normal day. You know, in other words, you know, like noise or, or you know, public urination or whatever they were complaining about, all those things. And the <laughs> question then becomes, is you know, as, as I saw David Letterman said, you know, they complain about noise, public urination, and uh, and and something else, and he said this is new york isn't that what happens every day you know so um uh, uh it, it is a certain level of presentation that distorts what ought to be a factual presentation that people can make judgments on i'm not saying that the journalists should make judgments but the journalists should present more than just each side's competing assertion to so that people yeah. can make informed judgments yeah yeah, I, I I understand, and I and I hope that I am one of those people. I, I myself, I don't make a secret of, of where I stand on something, but it's not about where I stand. It's more about what I can learn and and discover by by speaking with people, by by looking beyond uh, what I'm handed. Uh, anyway, uh, 
Joshua, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Also, to be able to get into journalism is an unexpected pleasure as well. Uh, for people that are listening, you can go to GuernicaMag.com, and then uh, I will put a link to the article, The Evaporation of American Political Dissent. And uh, Joshua, thanks for taking the time today. And, thanks for uh, having me. Speak to you in the future sometime for sure. Okay, great. Thanks. So that about does it for today's podcast. Nice to hear a legal voice from the United States on the issue of Occupy. Can't say I've had enough lawyers on this program, especially the kind that are interested in human rights and looking at recent history, also the distant history. Uh, it's, I think it all makes for a much better and well-rounded discussion. Uh, what is coming up that I want to bring up here at the end of the program, Republica 12. That is the conference that if you've been with me for a few years, you'll remember 2008 uh, when I spoke there, and I think there have been a few other times. Some of my favorite people and greatest adventures actually originate with having spoken at Republica. So I'm very pleased to return there next week. I'm giving a talk about the legacy of Occupy, and a lot of the knowledge learned here on the podcast will be used. If you're in the Berlin area, maybe you can still get a ticket and be there. Uh, I'll put a link to Republica 12 along with the show notes for this podcast. Other than that, citizenreporter.org. I've been adjusting, moving things around, making it easier, clearer, perhaps to use, especially for the newer people, but always keeping in mind the people who have been with me for a long time. So until next week, by all means, be subscribed, stay subscribed, look in iTunes, I'm there, Citizen Reporter. Thanks for listening. See ya.